chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for and even prevented. I'm John Chidgey and this is Causality. Causality is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can by becoming a premium subscriber. Premium subscribers have access to early release, high-quality ad-free episodes, as well as bonus episodes and to Causality Explored. You can do this via Patreon or, if you prefer, via our website. Visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show continue to be made. Thank you. Abravan. At 9.15am local time, on Friday the 21st of October 1966, an incident occurred at Abervan in Wales, the United Kingdom, where a waste tip from the Merthyrvale coal mine slipped following wet weather. The incident would leave a mark like none other in the mining sector in the United Kingdom and would influence subsequent legislation around the world. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Abervan is a small township of approximately 5,000 people, located near the bottom of the western slope of the Taff Valley, approximately 6 kilometres or 4 miles south of Merthyr Tydville. The Merthyrvale coal mine was built by John Nixon and Partners and began operating in August 1869, at which time the township consisted of two cottages and one inn. By 1966, the town's population had grown to 5,000 people, of which most worked in the coal industry. When mining coal, like most minerals, the extracted coal needs to be separated from rocks, dirt and other undesirables. This is done in what's called a coal prep plant, sometimes also called a wash plant. In addition, to power the prep plant, it was common to use some of the coal to fuel a steam boiler. Both of these processes led to waste rocks sand, silt and boiler ash and after operating for some time it accumulates. It has to go somewhere. An interesting point is that tailings is a subtype of wash plant or prep plant byproducts that more specifically involves a chemical process to remove certain other undesirable components of the mineral in question. The quality of the coal from this mine was such that these processes weren't required in any significant volume until the mid-1950s. In the earlier days of the mine, they tipped waste on nearby segments of the valley floor and the lower slopes east of the canal. However, they ran out of available space sometime in the 1910s. After several years, the coal mine had to start putting their spoils in a tip located on the western slopes, above the canal line and the village and in the lifetime of the mine, there were a total of seven used. Only one tip at a time was in use. The first tip, number one, from 1914 during the First World War, when complete was 26 metres high or 85 feet, contained 180,000 cubic metres or 230,000 cubic yards of material, west of the river but east of the canal. The second tip started in 1918, was 27 metres or 90 feet high, and contained 439,000 cubic metres or 574,000 cubic yards. Tip number three started in 1925, and completion was 40 metres or 130 feet high, contained 160,000 cubic metres or 210,000 cubic yards. Tip number four started in 1933, 
It was 45 metres or 147 feet high, contained 437,000 cubic metres or 572,000 cubic yards. It stopped being used in November 1944 when the tip slipped down part of the mountainside. We'll talk more about that later. Tip number five started from 1945. 52 metres high and 171 feet, and when it was completed, containing 540,000 cubic metres or 706,000 cubic yards. Tip number six started in 1956. It was 17 metres high, it's 56 feet, contained only 51,000 cubic metres or 67,000 cubic yards, but in early 1958 it was stopped being used due to complaints from a nearby landowner for material tipping over their boundary line to their property. The final tip, tip number seven, began being used in Easter of 1958. At its peak, it was 34 metres or 111 feet high. It contained 227,000 cubic metres or 297,000 cubic yards. Of that, this was the first tip to contain an estimated 22,900 cubic metres or 30,000 cubic yards of tailings from the prep plant. Tip number seven was approximately one kilometre from the western edge of the township of Abavan. Each tip was progressively further away from the mine by necessity was therefore higher up the nearby slope, seeing as how the mine was nestled at the bottom of a valley. So with that context, let's talk about the incident itself. At approximately 7.30am, the tip crew arrived at the top of the tip the charge hand, Leslie Davies, was not present since on Friday mornings he reported first thing to the unit mechanical engineer Vivian Thomas to deliver his weekly report. Gwyn Brown, the crane driver in the crew, and David Jones, a slinger from the same crew, noted when they arrived at the top of the tip that it had sunken significantly overnight. They estimated that it had sunk by about 9 to 10 feet, that's 2.5 to 3 metres, causing a section of the railway track that the crane moved along to sink down into the depression. In order to inform the charge hand, David Jones proceeded to physically head back down the hill to the coal mining offices below in the valley. This was because the telephone line at the top of the tip had been broken for quite some time due to the copper cabling being repeatedly stolen. Mr Jones delivered this information to both Mr Davies and Mr Thomas, after which Mr Thomas directed a crew with an oxyacetylene torch to the top of the tip to sever the damaged rails and to immediately cease tipping in their current location until Monday morning. The junior school in the Abavan township had started classes at 9am, with the younger children already in their classes. Mr Davies, Mr Jones and the two men with the oxytorch arrived just after 9am to find that the depression had sunk further, an additional 3 metres or 10 feet. Being near to morning break, the crane driver went to the crane to move it further back again whilst all of the others in the crew moved to the nearby hut to have morning tea, away from the top of the tip. In the moment where Gwyn Brown was about to re-enter the crane cabin, from the edge of the depression. He witnessed the depression seemingly rise quickly, then fall again at a tremendous speed. Tip 7 had begun to slip down the hillside as the lower section underwent liquefaction and a huge black sludge flow, about twice the density of water, began flowing freely toward Abavan. Two 
Hafford Tangles Ushaf Farm Colleges were the first structures to be destroyed by the flow, killing those inside. The flow then crossed a disused canal, but unearthed and broke two large water mains from the reservoirs in the Brecon Beacons to Cardiff and elsewhere that had been laid along the canal. The broken water mains in the process added more water to the flow. The flow then breached an old railway embankment. As the flow tore up the mountainside, it reached a peak of 80 kilometres per hour, that's 50 miles per hour. The flow then destroyed 18 houses, and shortly afterwards, the Pant Glass Junior School, and part of the neighbouring county secondary school. The flow finally came to a rest on Abavan Road. The entire event lasted less than one minute. The senior school classes were scheduled to start at 9.30am, with the older children, many of which were still making their way to the senior school at the time of the incident. As many people as were able took to freeing as many people as possible from the sludge, and for the next two and a half hours, they freed several survivors. At 11am that morning, despite the efforts of many rescuers, no more people were pulled from the sludge that survived. Water flowed freely from the damaged water mains until 11.30am when the supply was finally isolated upstream, though this had come too late to assist with any rescuing survivors. 144 people were killed, consisting of 28 adults and 116 children between the ages of 7 and 10. All but seven of those children from inside the Pantglass Junior School. Four days after the incident, on the 25th of October 1966, the Secretary of State for Wales appointed a tribunal to inquire into the disaster, consisting of Harold Harding, civil engineer, Vernon Lawrence and Lord Justice Sir Herbert Edmund Davies. The tribunal completed its hearings on the 28th of April 1967 with five months of public evidence considered, with 76 days' worth of time, note during that period, and over 136 witnesses in total. At the time, it was the longest-running inquiry of its kind in British history. The final report was published on the 3rd of August that year. The National Coal Board, or NCB, initially claimed that it was an act of God, geological factors combined with heavy rain. The tribunal concluded that disaster was, and I quote, a terrifying tale of bungling ineptitude by many men charged with tasks for which they were totally unfitted, of failure to heed clear warnings, and a total lack of direction from above. End quote. Another key finding was to assess and make safe where possible the remaining tips at Abavan. At the time of the incident, the 1954 Mines and Quarries Act did not include mining tips in them. It was renamed the Mines and Quarries in brackets Tips Act and re-released in 1969 as a direct result of this incident. Additionally, the Mines and Quarries Tips Regulation of 1971 gave significant detail on the construction and inspection requirements for tips. The re-release of the Act and regulations was so well written and thorough with no amendments that both the Act and the regulations were replaced by the Mines Regulations in 2014, which carried over the 1969 Act's provisions relating to tip stability. 
The report stated another factor leading to the incident was years of rigid and unrealistic disregard from the importance of the safety of the above-ground tips as opposed to the dangers within the mines, as well as a flawed decision-making process which ignored or minimised the likelihood and scale of the emergent danger, a dismissive attitude towards complaints from Abavan residents discounting the validity of their concerns and an incomplete and inadequate response to conditions which caused those complaints. The National Coal Board had its behaviour exposed quite publicly in 1997 when the 30-year rule, which was the rule's duration set in the Public Records Act of 1958, amended 1967, made public the NCB's records as a government agency. Numerous complaints had been made to the NCB in the lead-up to the incident, including a petition from the Pant Glass School in 1965. Beyond this, on the 24th of July 1963, DCW Jones, the Council's Borough and Waterworks Engineer, formally requested T. Ritchie, the District Public Works Superintendent, to investigate personally before approaching the NCB. DCW Jones then went on to the NCB formally, sending a letter to D. Roberts, the Area Chief Mechanical Engineer for the NCB, on the 20th of August 1963, stating... You are no doubt well aware of the tips at Merthyrvale Tower above the Pant Glass area, and if they were to move, a very serious position would accrue. Not satisfied with a single attempt, he also sent a letter to D. Roberts, the Area Chief Mechanical Engineer for the NCB, stating, They have previously experienced, during periods of heavy rain, the movement of the slurry to the danger and detriment of people and property adjoining the sites of these tips. To respond to these and various others, D. Roberts, the NCB's Area Chief Mechanical Engineer, officially mailed the Merthyr Town Clerk T.S. Evans on January 28, 1964, stating, A satisfactory and suitable place other than the tip to dispose of the tailings eludes me at the moment and causes me great concern. A follow-up letter sent on the 13th of March 1964 stated, With regard to disposing of slurries, this is, at present, still being disposed of on the tipping site via the local tramway, but it is our intention to discontinue this and dispose of the slurries mixed with washery shale at Plymouth Coilery, near Merthyr Tidville, site, until such time as the new tipping site can be found. That was two years before the incident. Clearly they didn't. Tip 7 had experienced two minor slips three years before the incident, the first in May 1963 and the second in November 1963, leaving a small crater at the top of the pile, and as a result, a bulge had formed at the foot of the tip. It was deduced that spring water from the mountain was building up under sections of the tip and was now unable to drain away which in turn partly liquefied the spoil in small pockets into thick, black, quicksand-like material. The NCB, however, stated that this movement in 1963 had not been a slide, but was instead a tailings run. In mining terminology, tailings runs is a runoff of tailings across the surface of the tip, only leaving the underlying structural stability of the tip unaffected. That was their claim. After the November 1963 slide on Tip 7, the NCB stopped tipping tailings on Tip 7, but continued to deposit other spoil. Long before that, 
Tip number four at Abavan was also large, like tip seven, and had been started on boggy ground between two streams and following some ground movements in the tip in the early 1940s, a drainage channel was dug in early 1944 as a preventative measure. In November 1944, despite the channel being dug, part of the tip slid 490 metres, that's 1,600 feet, down the mountain to stop approximately 150 metres or 500 feet above the village. That's rather close. So who ran the mine? Since the nationalisation of the British coal industry in 1947, Abervan's coilery had been under the control of the National Coal Board, or NCB. Regulation in the coal industry was provided by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Mines. The inspectors had worked as engineers in the coal industry and were former employees of the NCB. It was essentially government-run as a quasi-autonomous body, though in terms of inspections, there were regulations and standards in place for work executed underground and in the processing of minerals due to the higher-risk environment However, little regulation existed for tips. Hence, whilst most other day-to-day activities had closer scrutiny, the tips didn't. So let's talk about the stability of the tips. Tip stability, unsurprisingly, is affected by water conditions and geological stability. In the case of Abavan, the area was geologically stable, so in this case, mainly driven by moisture. Tips 4, 5 and 7 had been sighted on streams or springs. Based on assessments at the time, they would be unlikely to cause concern. The presence of the springs was common knowledge in the area. They had even been marked on Ordnance Surveys and Geological Society maps since 1874. Even the Tipping Gang work crews would regularly obtain their drinking water from a spring at the foot of Tip 7. That was before the tip extended over the top of the spring. The groundwater springs were largely a result of a combination of porous rock layers and impermeable clay layers that gradually funneled rainwater into high concentrations near those impermeable layers. It was easily possible in many spots along the slope to dig a shallow hole and have it quickly filled with water as was noted during the testimonies during the investigation. These springs would dry up in extremely low rainfall, hot, dry seasons, and this was quite uncommon in Wales. Abavan in particular is an area of relatively high rainfall, averaging 1,500 millimetres or 60 inches of rainfall every year. In 1960, there was 1,790 millimetres or 70.5 inches, which was the heaviest of the decade leading up to the incident. During the first three weeks of October in 1966 in particular in Abavan, there was 170 millimetres or 6.5 inches of rainfall and nearly half of that fell in the third week just before the incident. Also, between 1952 and 1965, there were 11 severe flooding events in the Pantglass area of Abavan. Residents complained to the council that the flood water was black in appearance and it left greasy residues when the waters had finally receded. The aftermath, although exact numbers are difficult to know for certain, 
it is estimated by authorities that 20 parents in Abavan had their lives cut short following the loss of their children. Divorce, as well as drug and alcohol abuse, spiked significantly following the incident. Many residents found that they couldn't sleep if it was raining even lightly for fear that there would be another tip slip. The Abavan Disaster Fund collected over 90,000 donations and received £1.75 million. That's about £33 million or $40 million US dollars in today's money. The NCB refused to wholly pay to remove the remaining tips when they were directed to do so by the Secretary of State. Hence, the Charity Commission and the government authorised the release of £150,000 from the disaster fund. The NCB contributed 350000 the government paid 350000 to remove the remaining tips for a total cost of £850,000. Interestingly, in a somewhat late attempt to make amends for this, in 1997, Ron Davies, the Secretary of State for Wales at that time, repaid the disaster fund £150,000, albeit in the currency of that time, with no accounting for inflation or any other adjustments. The disaster fund was also used to pay for the rebuilding of the Bethania Chapel, and it was used for decades, but finally closed in 2007. The NCB's chairman, Lord Robbins, was quoted speaking to reporters that it was, and I quote, impossible to know that there was a spring in the heart of this tip, end quote. Ordnance survey maps showed the spring. Following the incident, nobody from the NCB was sacked, no one was demoted, and no one was fined. Interestingly, Lord Robbins was selected to chair a detailed review of health and safety across many industries, which resulted in the creation of the Health and Safety at Work Act in 1974, as well as the Health and Safety Commission and the Health and Safety Executive. The Murtavale Coilery closed in 1989, and today all that remains is the mine's sheave wheel, concreted into the ground where the mine once stood, now the centre point of a roundabout for a road around the village. The NCB initially offered £50 of compensation to each family impacted by the incident, and by 1970 had increased this to an offer of £500. To that point, families had been supported through the disaster fund, not from the NCB. The amended Act and regulations introduced between 1969 and 1971 forced the National Coal Board, in conjunction with the Welsh Development Agency, to invest over £50 million into surveying and risk-assessing the stability of all of their existing TIPs and remediating those that needed improved stability to meet the new regulations. Since this has occurred, the number of slips have been small in quantity and in size, with no reported injuries in the five decades since. So what do we learn about all this? There are three key points I'd like to make about Abavan. The first is about near misses. We talked about them before. Near misses absolutely must be fed into future decisions. The NCB had been in place since 1947. It presided over many coilleries, 
In the decade leading up to Abavan, there were multiple eerily similar incidents at other coilleries with their full knowledge. Interestingly, some of these weren't considered during the Abavan inquiry, and when considered, it shows a clear lack of learning from near misses. The inquiry considered five prior incidents at three tip sites between 1939 and 1965. I'm going to do my best with these pronunciations. They're Welsh and I'm not. Silfenund Coilery near Pontypridd on December 5th, 1939. Abavan tip number four, as discussed, October 27, 1944. Abavan tip number five between 1947 and 1951, and Abavan tip number 7, November 1963. The redundant Timor coilery in Ronda on the 29th of March 1965. Unmentioned at the inquiry was a slide at Park coilery on the 23rd of November 1960. Now, in this specific incident, it resulted in the evacuation of 44 families. Restoring and repairing work took 18 months to restore the mine to normal use, leading to significant financial losses from lost production during that time. On an unrecorded date in 1965, the same tip failed again. Evidence suggested groundwater was most likely from a buried spring beneath the tip. Sound similar? In 1996, a paper written for the Quarterly Journal of Engineering Geology called Rapid Failures of Coilery Spoil Heaps in the South Wales Coldfield identified 21 significant incidents between 1898 and 1965. The earliest incident in that paper occurred on the 3rd of November 1898, when five houses were demolished in Bailey Street, Wattstown, Rhonda, below the National Coilery Tip. The slip happened at one in the morning, with a very loud noise that woke the residents. A high retaining wall stopped the flow for several minutes which gave residents precious moments to escape into the night. Within a couple of minutes when the rotating wall collapsed and the slip engulfed their houses whilst it caused significant damage, no lives were lost. So despite the numerous slips, the warnings and smaller slips even at the Abavan mine, the near misses and minor incidents were downplayed and nothing was changed. In fact, many incidents at this point in time weren't classed as as reportable incidents, since legislation at the time didn't recognise any need to report anything if there was no fatalities. Since then, things have changed, thankfully. We have to investigate every near miss that we can. If you need five things to go wrong to reach that final incident where everything aligns, and today you, in air quotes, got lucky, and only four of those five things lined up Find out how to stop the other four things that did align from happening so you don't actually ever have an incident. The second point is that economics can drive dangerous decisions. How do we deal with mine tailings and waste is a problem for every single mining operation. The waste has got to go somewhere. The problem when you're at the bottom of a valley is you don't have very many good, easy options. If you fill up the low-lying areas, you'll make localised flooding worse. If you put waste high up on nearby hills, you'll end up having incidents like this. Sometimes it's possible to put the waste back down in the underground mining tunnels, but that only works if you're not still using those tunnels. The problem with Abavan was that the economics of the mine weren't that great at the time, due to two key factors. The global markets were switching away from coal to move to oil, since oil was becoming cheaper and more plentiful, 
it was safer to extract and, for the most part, burned more cleanly. Disposing of the waste was becoming more expensive and there were no other easy options. After the incident, the mine reopened and they began dumping further afield at a greater expense and a further decline in the value of coal eventually forced the mine to close in 1989. The fear at the time was that any additional expense might put at risk all of the jobs in the township of Abavan. And it was a small township that depended upon the income from the mine. The NCB didn't react to objections from the public regarding the safety of the tips because they knew there weren't any other easy alternatives, and that drove bad decisions. The final point is that the wrong people picked the locations for these tips in the first place. Civil engineers and geologists understood plenty at that stage of history. They knew how to build retaining walls, select stable locations for tables like these. It was an understood and in many respects solved problem. But they weren't involved. The regulations at the time didn't include tips, even though solid practices existed Regulations didn't cover tips, so the NCB didn't have to do anything. No inspections, nothing. There was, in effect, no bar against which to be measured. And so they built the tip wherever they liked, wherever it was convenient, however they liked to build it, never really inspected it, and when complaints were made, did nothing about it. Unqualified people were making those decisions. So let's summarise the events just one last time. Now, I want to do this a little differently. Imagine I'm explaining this to just anybody in the street. It's early 1966. See what you think. We've built a coal mine at the bottom of the hill. We've been stacking waste rubble from it nearly 50 years now and a bunch of piles up over on that hill just there. The biggest pile near us is about a kilometre away. It's been raining a lot lately. The hillside has this lovely groove that when the water runs down it, when it rains heavily... And uh, that's my house over there, near the bottom of the hill. You know, 22 years ago, that other tip over there, it slid down the hill and got to 150 metres from my house's front door. It's crazy, huh? I mean, that tip, it wasn't quite as tall as the one they're still dumping on today, but it was further away, so there's that. You have to ask yourself, how is it possible to not see there's some kind of risk living under that kind of threat falling on you. It's some kind of extreme blindness or madness. It just boggles the mind. The similarities to Starver Dam are clear. The tailings dams, though, are a more modern approach to simply tipping tailings and a big pile on the side of a, of a wet hill. But the same learnings can apply. And the other difference was the residents couldn't see the dam, whereas... Abavan, they could see the tip right there. If you're picking a spot for a tip, pick one where, if it lets go, people won't get killed. Let's start with that. Pick a spot where there's no underground water source. That's another good one. The biggest lesson, though, is making your voice heard. As much as there's criticism of the NCB, clearly, there were a few people within the NCB that did recognise the risk. Even with the records reopened, even with the records open to the public, we still can't be sure how or why those people's voices weren't heard. So many things that we come across as engineers, you can choose to make your voice heard or to let it slide. I don't know 
if they let it slide in this specific case, the mountainside slid and 144 people died because of it. 116 children sitting in class at school died because someone chose economics over safety. The Queen of England, the still reigning Queen Elizabeth II, visited Aberfan following this incident. She's well known for not showing emotion in public, stiff upper lip, the Brits like to say. When she saw it with her own eyes, she cried, one of only a handful of times in public that she's cried. And I get it. I absolutely understand why. Because this whole incident just seems so completely pointless and so completely easily avoidable. If you're enjoying Causality and you want to support the show, you can by becoming a premium subscriber. You can find details at engineer.network slash causality with a thank you to all of our patrons and premium subscribers and a special thank you to our Patreon silver producers, Mitch Bielger, John Whitlow, Joseph Antonio, Kevin Kosh, and Oliver Steele. And an extra special thank you to our Patreon gold producer known only as R. Premium subscribers and patrons have access to early release, high-quality ad-free episodes, as well as bonus episodes and to Causality Explored. You can do this via Patreon or, if you prefer, via our website. Visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Of course, there's lots of other ways to help, like favoriting the show in your podcast player app or sharing the episode or the show with your friends or via social. Some podcast players let you share audio clips of episodes, so if you have a favorite segment, feel free to share that too. All of these things help others discover the show and can make a big difference too. Causality is heavily researched and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. You can follow me on the Fediverse at chigi at engineered.space, on Twitter at John Chigi, or one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks so much for listening.